the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to The Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken. This is the Wednesday edition. And again, I'm filling in for Pastor Ron. Uh, You can continue to keep him in your prayers. I've heard uh, from him. He's on his way to getting better, but not quite ready to get back on the air. And so today the show will continue as it always does. We're here to help you with your questions, questions about the Bible, questions about the Word of God and how to put it into practice in your life. Uh, questions about Jesus, questions about church life, anything we can do to help you. That's why we're here. So the phone number is 210-340-9585, 210-340-9585. There's a toll-free number, 877-630-5757. That's 877 877- Six three zero five seven five seven. We have an email address if you want to submit questions that way. It's questions at calvarysa.com. Questions at calvarysa.com. You can use our church app, uh, Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. You can submit questions that way. Uh, you can also use the KSLR app. To dial into the show, you can listen live there, and you can also click the Call Now banner up at the top. It'll connect you right to the radio station, and you can ask your question on the air. Much easier, especially if you're driving. Well, I hope you're having a great Wednesday. It's uh, rainy over here and uh, just yucky, not too cold, not too muggy, but just dangerous. So I hope that you're safe there on the roads. Be careful while you're listening. Uh, Tonight here, it is our Old Testament Bible study night. And so Pastor Chris Sanchez will be teaching out of Malachi's prophecy. So he'll be teaching Malachi, I believe in chapter one, seven o'clock here at Calvary Chapel. You're welcome to join us. You can tune in online at calvarysa.com, but we'd much rather see you in person. So come by seven o'clock here at the church. Okay, I'll give you the phone numbers to you. Let me go right to the questions that have already been submitted while we wait for your phone calls. The first one is from Jeremiah. Why would God choose Abraham if he was worshiping idols before he was called? Uh, Jeremiah, I love this question because... The simple answer is God wanted to be a blessing to Abraham. Abraham, you know, came before uh, there was even Israel, came before there was even the law. And Abraham, we learn from the New Testament, both in Romans and in Galatians, that he was one that was pagan. He came from a pagan idol-worshipping background, but yet he placed his faith in God. 
Romans chapter 4, verse 3 tells us that uh, in the same way Genesis chapter 15 does, because Abraham believed God at his word, it was credited unto him righteousness, the righteousness of God. And so why God specifically chose Abraham, we're not explicitly told. But we do know this. Abraham was the one through whom the second thing is that the Messiah would come. And so Galatians also tells us that Abraham would be used to prepare the way for the Messiah. It would be his offspring, singular. We know that the promise of Abraham given to him by God would be that God would multiply his descendants. And that is true. But speaking of the reference there of the offspring with Galatians chapter 3 that Paul references is speaking of Jesus, the singular offspring. So God chose Abraham, number one, to be a blessing to him and to the rest of the world. And number two, uh, God chose Abraham because it would be through him that God would bring the Messiah and Jesus would come. I love the fact that, and I think we had a question about this yesterday as well. I just love the fact that uh, Abraham was a religious man, a pagan man, uh, uh, but a man that was literally far off. You know, he and his wife, Sarai, would be worshiping idols. And God reached from afar off to bring him close to him. Because that's exactly what he does today. That's why Abraham is the father of all who would believe. Not just to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. He's the father of of our faith because his faith precedes any law or anything. He simply believed God at his word, and that's how he was declared righteous. So even if we're not explicitly told, Jeremiah. Um, that's the reason why God chose Abraham. Great question. Wonderful study. Romans chapter 4 again. Galatians chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 15, uh, Abraham is one that we look up to because he believed. Um, let's go to a question that has been just submitted from Mark and Austin. Can you give me an explanation of Matthew chapter 5, verses 22 to 24? And how it applies to Christianity. I know what it says, but Mark, I'm just going to look it up just in case I don't misread it. Verse 22. So chapter 5 is obviously the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount. <clears throat> okay, so after, at the end there, he goes through the Beatitudes. Uh, verse 22 but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who, is, who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Oh, yes. And that's verse 20, 22. And then he goes on to verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar first. And go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and, and offer your gift. Settle these matter, matters quickly. And I think there, Mark, that the, the verse, the verses after explain what Jesus is talking about. So I love this question, too, because uh, this is one that comes up for once in a while. When, when we hear the word uh, raka, it's not something that's in our common vernacular, right? But it would be to the first century Jew. And this would be a, a curse. This would be somebody who is calling cursing, a curse upon somebody else. Not in the sense that they're casting a spell on them, but a curse in the sense that they, in the sense that they want nothing but uh, harm done to a person. 
And Jesus is addressing not the words that come out of the mouth, Mark, but he's addressing the heart from which these words come. And so when he says that there, there, if you have anything against your brother, well, prior to that, he's saying, you've heard it said. This is how Jesus sets it up. Do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But then Jesus says, I tell you, anyone who's angry, not, not committing murder, but anyone who is angry, and the idea here is angry in his heart against a brother, is subject to judgment. Why? Because he's already committed murder in his heart. And because the Pharisees would be so focused on the outside, the outward manifestation, what it looks like with their phylacteries and long robes and the long prayers, they were focused on what words come out of the mouth. But Jesus said, no, it's the heart from which that comes from. And if you even prevent raka from coming out of your mouth, but you have raka in your heart, you're guilty. You're guilty. And so he says, don't come to me or don't come to the altar with raka in your heart, even if you don't say it outside, out loud, because you've got a grievance against your brother. You've got a grudge against somebody. Jesus says, no, make it right. Go repent, get your heart right with God, and then go make it right with your brother. Then you can come to the table and and present your offering to God. And so when we look at the bigger context of the Sermon on the Mount, Mark, remember, he is speaking to those people that are listening to him with their religious leaders, sort of in the periphery, in the background. With the, in the background there, the religious leaders sort of looking on and, and, and ready to find something to complain about. And so he uses them, the religious leaders, sort of as a word picture. And that's exactly what he's saying, Mark. So again, Raka, the word coming out of your mouth is not the problem. It's where the heart in which it comes from. And Jesus says, no, go and deal with it. Now, how that would apply to us today, I think it's pretty clear. All right, if you're coming to church and you call yourself a born-again Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you, you cannot, with good conscience, sit before the Lord, raise your hands in worship, and, 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 and tell the Lord that you, you have given everything to Him through these worship lyrics on the screen, while you know in your heart you're angry at somebody when you are raging against somebody, that you have hatred for someone. You can't do that. And Jesus says, there is no value. You have no credit for preventing those words to come out of your mouth. Because if they're inside your heart and you hold them in, you don't get any points for that. He's saying, let's go fix this. Make it right. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Fix your heart. Repent of your sin and then come and worship. Great question, Mark. Thank you. Uh, let's go back to our questions that have been submitted. The next one is anonymous. Can you help me understand what First Peter chapter 1, verse 12 means when it says angels long to look into these things? I can, Anonymous. Uh, you know, I, I just talked about this recently. I don't remember if it was a Bible study or if it was on the radio show. But I love this. I absolutely love this because uh, in the context of First Peter, so let me look at it. Let me read it. Here, back in verse 12, uh, let me go at the end of verse 11. And Peter writes, trying to find out, this is, the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and that the glories that would follow. So, concerning salvation, that's what this section is about. The angels, in verse 12, knew God's plan of salvation for mankind. So, in verse 12, 
with the context of salvation here in view, Peter writes, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, you being Christians. When they spoke of the things that have now been told by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. And and I visualize in my mind what this scene would look like in heaven. You know, for me personally, it was November 30th, 1997, when I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I remember it like it was yesterday, but it was a long time ago. But it, it blows my mind to think that on that day, that night, that very moment, the angels in heaven were excited to see God's plan of salvation unfold for me in my life. Luke chapter 15, Jesus, through the parable of the prodigal son, tells us that there's a party in heaven when even one sinner repents. And so this plan of salvation that God has before the foundation of the earth, he knew each one of us. He knew that the way and the manner in which and when it would unfold for each individual that would say yes to Jesus. So angels, they longingly look into these things. They're ministering agents of God, serving God, and, and, and doing whatever it takes to carry out his plan or accomplish his plan of salvation for every person. And, and so I love that. And remember, too, angels, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 talks about angels being, uh, Jesus being superior to angels because angels are just ministering servants. Now, they have great power for sure. They operate in the throne room of God in the heavenly realms, fighting battles that we are not even aware of. But with that great power, standing in the presence of God, they're actually interested in what goes on in our lives. And that's what he's talking about. That's what Peter is referring to. Even angels long to look into these things. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. The next one is, again, from Anonymous. Oh, it's related. Uh, Why was Satan given access to God's throne room in Job? Anonymous, the short answer is, I don't know. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. You know, Peter describes how the enemy, he, he prowls around like a roaring lion, going to and fro and seeking someone to to devour. And what we do know is that what the devil and his demons are constantly doing is looking for opportunities to cause havoc, to create misery. They're looking constantly aware of uh, people's weaknesses, And because God the Father is in heaven, he's not afraid. And Jesus isn't afraid of the devil. The devil is, remember, the devil and his demons, they are servants of God. God uses them to carry out his plan. So they are servants of God. But why Satan was given access... We don't know explicitly, but we know this. It, just because he has access in in Job's book doesn't mean that he has any authority or any power there. He's still a servant of God. And that's one thing we need to remember, too. Whenever we are enduring attacks, spiritual attacks, because we're constantly in war, whether we realize it or not, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Well, there is no attack 
that the enemy can do or carry out that is not allowed by God. There is no attack that goes and takes Jesus by surprise. And so the devil, no matter what he tries to do, can't do anything without God allowing it to happen. But why God allows the enemy to tempt us and to try to distract us, we don't know. But we do have an answer in this battle of spiritual warfare. God has equipped us with his word. He's equipped us with the power of his spirit. And that's all we need. So whether or not the enemy has access to the throne room of God, it, it, it's irrelevant to what we do on a daily basis. We have to remember that we are constantly engaged in battle, spiritual warfare. It's so anonymous. I hope that helps. Thank you for your question. Nobody yet on the phone lines, so let's go to April. April says, why would Paul say, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile? It seems like God is showing favoritism. Now, April, this is a quote from Romans chapter 1, and um, I do have a few more minutes here till we get to the end of this segment, so I'll I won't be able to take any calls here at this half, but I'll close out by talking about this because this is important. Romans chapter 1, and your quote there is from verse 16 and 17, which is talking about the gospel message. And so when you ask the question, why would Paul say the gospel is first to the Jew? It's very simple. It's because Jesus came to earth as a Jew. So Jesus would appear first to the Jews. His message of salvation, of the kingdom of God coming, was first to the Jew. Remember when Jesus was speaking to the Syrophoenician woman, and all she wanted uh, was Jesus. And Jesus said, I'm here for Israel. I'm coming first to the Jews. And she, in her response, which is out of faith. Her response was, well, even the dogs come for the crumbs from the table, indicating like, she doesn't care whether or not it's Jew or Gentile. All she wants is Jesus. And Jesus said, that your faith, that your faith, that, that is faith, and your faith was rewarded you. That's the kind of faith we need to demonstrate. So it doesn't matter that uh, Jew, uh, Jesus came for, to the Jews first. That, that's not favoritism. Because today in this current dispensation, there is only one way to be made right with God. Whether you're a Jew, a Gentile, uh, male or female, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic structure you come from, what background you come from, what culture you're from. Jesus says that whoever believes in him will be forgiven of the sin and receive eternal life. That's the beauty of the gospel message. So don't worry too much about the fact, April, that Paul wrote that Jesus came first to the Jew, or the, the gospel is first to the Jew, came first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. He's simply saying, from a chronology perspective. This is how Jesus came. And the message was primarily to the Jews. Remember, in the first century, the church was primarily composed of Jews. The letter to the Hebrews was written primarily to first century Jewish Christians because the church was made up of Jewish people. And that's all he's talking about. I think this is very important, too, because one aspect about this, especially in this current world that we live in, there is a demonic 
rise in anti-Semitism. And that's what it is. Yes, the Jews were chosen. God chose Israel to reveal himself to the world. But even today, Jewish people still need to get saved. And the only way they can do that is by putting the faith in their faith in Jesus Christ as the one Messiah that they've been looking for. So the fact that the gospel came through them doesn't mean that they have, uh, they had an advantage because they heard about it first. But the message is still the same. There is no favoritism. Now, for Israel, we have to also remember this as we're closing here in a few minutes, or a few seconds to close out this first half. Remember, not all of Israel is Israel. It's those that put their faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the ones that will be saved. So there's no favoritism there anymore. Well, you can hear the music. That means we are done with the first half of the Wednesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the word to stand on for life, the Wednesday edition. My name is Pastor Ken. If you're just tuning in, I'm filling in for Pastor Ron as he is recovering from just feeling under the weather. So keep him in your prayers in the meantime, our show continues as usual. 210-340-9585. That's the phone number if you want to call in. 877-630-5757. With that, let's go right to our phone line. Cindy from San Antonio, you're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ken. How are you? Hi, Cindy. It's great to hear your voice. I'm doing okay. Oh, good. Um, in Psalm 75... Uh, Verse 8, it says, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. And then, in Revelation 19, 15, it says, Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And I wondered if you would explain those those uh, two verses, and I'll listen on the radio. Thank you. Absolutely. Bye. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you for your question. Uh, I love your questions. Great and astute observation. So Psalm 75, you're right, is, is a psalm of judgment. And here in, in, in Psalm 75... The, the, the cup, the foaming wine that's described, I think it's in verse 7 and 8 here. Yes, but it is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with its spices, and he pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. He's talking about judgment that is coming. So this is a future judgment. And and the idea here is that the foaming cup is a word picture of the fullness of his wrath, the fullness of God's wrath. And and the idea that uh, they would be made, the people of the earth, the ones who are being judged, they will be made to drink of this cup. To drink of the cup is is the the same reason why Jesus said in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, is there any way that this cup, can pass from it because drinking of the cup is the cup of God's wrath that would be poured out upon them. And so at the end of our the seven-year tribulation period, and that's what's in view, this foaming wine, this overflowing cup would, would be forced upon the entire earth for everyone to drink because judgment is coming. 
and all the wicked here, it says in verse 8, they will be forced to undergo this, this staggering judgment. Now, fast forward to what your reference to in, in Revelation. This sword that's described, that's being used in judgment. Let me make sure I look it up correctly. The sword that's used is the word of God that will be that God will use. Jesus Himself will use to carry out judgment on the earth. So when we see this word picture of the double-edged sword, we're thinking of Hebrews chapter four. This is the reference that Revelation that John is making. It's it's not a huge sword, a physical sword, but it's by the word of God that judgment is going to be poured out on an unbelieving world. And so what's in view is, again, the same thing in Psalm 75, focuses towards uh, the end. At the end of judgment, there will be a time when all those who've rebelled against God and stood against Jesus will face the judgment that is coming. We're also reminded this sort of figuratively, but in 1 Timothy chapter 5, when Paul is writing to a young pastor, he's saying that there are some good things that people do that are obvious and some things that are not so obvious that people do. And then he goes on to say, and then there are the sins of some men that are also obvious, but there are other sins where their judgment for those sins is trailing right behind them. In other words, there isn't anything that Jesus is going to leave unpunished and no wicked deed that's going to go unpunished because Jesus will pour out his wrath on an unbelieving world. Again, good observation from Psalm 75. Thank you, Cindy, for your call. Uh, let's go back to our phone lines. We have Kenny from San Antonio. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ken. Hi, Kenny. Hello. How are you, sir? I just wanted to ask you two quick questions. Okay. Um, you know how when when uh, Jesus was obedient to the cross, and then um, if you could just answer me this, I know by him uh, being obedient till death on the cross, did, did they? I know it, it glorified the Father, and then if you could just clear this up for me, and and then it says. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, um, the Father, Jesus glorified the Father by his death on the cross, did he not? And yes. then did they, glor- did they glorify one another? Yes. That's my question. And then, Absolutely. That's In fact, I, John's that's Gospel records this. Okay, you know, I can answer that, Kenny. Great questions. Uh, so let let me address that last part first, and then we'll talk about uh, Jesus' work on the cross. So remember in John's Gospel, when, when Jesus said, I think it's at the fifth chapter, when Jesus said, there's nothing that I do unless the Father tells me to do it. And then he goes on to say that everything I do is done to glorify my Father in heaven even unto death on the cross. And so Jesus knew that his life here on earth was meant to be as a sacrifice. And that's why when it came time to uh, his crucifixion, there in the later part of John's Gospel, there was a, a, such an intimate conversation there in the Garden of Gethsemane between Jesus and his Father. Because Jesus was fully human, he, he asked the Father, there's any way that, that this cup cannot pass before him? And the answer was no. And so he glorified the Father by being obedient even unto death on the cross. This is what Hebrews reminds us of also. And so Jesus, yes, Kenny, he glorified the Father in death 
on the cross, and the Father glorified the Son. That's exactly what John's gospel really focuses on, that that, that the Father will be glorified through the Son, and that the Son's obedience while he was here on earth would glorify the Father. And Kenny, the, the reason why that's so important for us, and this is a, an application for us that we can't miss, Jesus calls us to do the exact same thing. In the same way that Jesus gave himself up, he gave up everything to be obedient to the Father. And he did that for us. It pleased the Father to give up his Son. And it pleased the Son to give his life up for us. Well, our lives should be, and this is what Romans chapter 12 describes, in view of God's mercy, in view of what Jesus has done to glorify the Father, and in view of what the Father has done for us by giving up his Son, the natural response to that is to offer our own lives as a living sacrifice. This is a reasonable act of worship. It's a reasonable response when we consider what Jesus has done for us. So yes, Kenny, Jesus glorified the Father. He didn't do anything unless it it was what the Father had told him to do. And by doing that, he glorified the Father, and then the Father glorified the Son by raising him again after he was buried. Great question, Kenny. Thank you for your call. So those are the things that we take time to think about, when, especially when life is really hard. When things are difficult for us, we need to ask ourselves if our response to our difficult circumstances still bring glory and honor to our Father in heaven. This is exactly what Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus was talking about, when he was talking about the light in our lives. He is the light. Jesus is the light of the world. And if he lives in us, then Jesus said, your light should shine. We are to let our light so shine so that the people around us can see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. That's exactly the same thing that he wants to do in us. Thanks again, Kenny. Let's go back to the submitted questions. We have one from Anonymous. Why is abortion wrong when even God gave commands in the Old Testament to kill women, children, and babies? Anonymous, this is a a pretty common question. And so let me remind you that there is a distinct difference in the Bible between murder and killing. Now, when we look at the Ten Commandments, and this is where we find the command not to murder, it doesn't say thou shalt not kill, it says thou shalt not murder. (coughs) It says thou shalt not murder. And so, That means that there can't be any killing illegally, killing out of sin. What it does mean is that sometimes, uh, because of punishment or because of whatever it may be, that somebody's life may be required. But whether it's self-defense or anything like that, that's not the same thing as murder because to defend yourself is not a violation of the command not to murder, but to kill somebody intentionally for selfish reasons. That's illegal, and that's murder. That's the reason why abortion is wrong. The child is innocent. There, There is... Nothing that the baby has done that they would deserve to be killed. 
And so when we have an abortion, we are committing murder. And so when God would say, here to your question, Anonymous, well, what about the times when God would say, go wipe out the Amalekites, wipe out the Perizzites and the other Canaanites and the children? And it wasn't because uh, they didn't do anything wrong. That's a picture of God's judgment. It's because of their constant disobedience, their prolonged disobedience and the rebellion towards the God of Israel. That's why there would be consequences. That's judgment. And and think about it this way, too. You know, even when it was babies and children, in a way, it was God's way to spare them from a life of accountability and judgment when they would get older. That's how wicked and evil the people were in their rebellion to God. And so abortion is murder. But when God would carry out his judgment on an unbelieving and rebellious people in the Old Testament, that wasn't murder. That was judgment. The end result is the same, the loss of a life, but the motive behind the two are completely different. So I I hope that helps, Anonymous. There's a big difference between murder and killing. Let's go on to the next question from another one from Anonymous. I spoke with a Mormon, and they insisted that they believe in Jesus and that he died and rose again for their sins. I know they believe in different things besides this, but if they believe in Jesus and what he has done for them, Will they be able to go to heaven? Well, the short answer is that faith in Jesus, that is not the Jesus that the Bible describes, is not a faith that can save anybody. Just because somebody has the same name doesn't mean that they're talking about the same person. And, you know, often... Mormons will say, well, we even have Jesus Christ in the name of our religion. That doesn't matter because it's the definition behind the name that matters, not the name itself. You can say Jesus all day long, but if you have a different Jesus than the Jesus described in the Bible, I would point them to John chapter 1. There is there is unequivocal evidence that Jesus, the Logos, is the eternal creator God that pre-existed creation. He is not, as Mormons would believe, the, the spirit child of a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. He's not the firstborn of a heavenly father. He is God the Son and the Son of God who coexisted with the Holy Spirit and the Father before time and space were even created. And so if you don't have the the definition of Jesus that is based upon the Word of God, not the Book of Mormon or anything else, then you don't have a Jesus that can save you. And so that's why, you know, you get to be careful about getting caught up in these these word games that uh, people try to do when they say, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? And again, if he's not the Jesus of the Bible, the eternal God, creator God, he's a distinct person of the triune Godhead. And no matter how they try to explain it, if that's not who they believe in, then they don't have a Jesus that could save them. What I would do, Anonymous, is when I have people that I talk to, friends or even family, 
that that talk about a Jesus that is different than the Jesus that the Bible describes, we just go to the Word of God. And we say, is this the Jesus that you believe in? And and if if somebody has a false belief in Jesus or, or a false religion, you don't have to worry about the specific doctrines of they believe this about you know resurrection or they believe this about death. And it always comes down to the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus to them? And once you establish what the Bible clearly says about who Jesus is, all of the rest then will be made clear. So Anonymous, thank you for your help. Um, thank you for your question. And regarding the help with your Mormon friend, uh, go to the Word of God and just talk about the Jesus that's described there. Kyle asks, is predestination as simple as God knowing who would believe in him and him choosing them back? Um, So Kyle, the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination, same thing, is a biblical doctrine. It is. And, and, but as, as students of the Bible, we don't have to be afraid of what this doctrine means. Now, we interpret the Bible from what we call it a dispensationalist perspective. And all that means is we take the Bible literally. We interpret it literally according to the literary genre it's written in. And we make a clear distinction between Israel and the church. Because really, that's the only way the Bible is going to make sense. Now, the reason why I paint that backdrop is because when it comes to the question of predestination, uh, you will get different definitions from people who have a different theological persuasion. Now, here at Calvary Chapel, again, we are dispensationalists in our interpretation, which is different than a covenant theology perspective. To those that subscribe to a Reformed persuasion or a Calvinist perspective, uh, their idea of predestination would be somebody who is arbitrarily picked by God to be saved, and some that are not picked to be saved. But Peter writes, and in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes, and in Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, a clear definition of what the doctrine of predestination is. And Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that God has predestined us. So we are predestined. But the basis of that predestination is described and explained in Peter. It's the basis upon which we are predestined. So God picks us before the foundation of the earth to be his because he knows those who are going to respond to him. You know, some people want to describe it as, you know, God looking down the corridor of time and space and knowing that I would respond to his invitation. And some would balk at that and say, well, see, that makes it a work. It's not a work. It is God who initiates. It is God who invites. It is God who does all of the work to invite me into his family. My response is, yes, that's it. And so God doesn't force me to say yes, but God knows those who are his. So the doctrine of predestination is God knowing those who are going to be his and choosing them on that basis of his foreknowledge. He knows ahead of time. And so, Kyle, I hope that's clear. You know, one of the things that uh, we have to be really careful of when we study our Bibles is we don't want to read doctrine into what we're reading. We just want to read the Bible at face value. And this is important because there are some out there who put a lot of energy into evangelizing into their particular theological persuasion. I'm not an evangelist of 
the dispensationalist view. But just reading the Bible at face value, uh, that's the only way that it makes sense. So you, you don't have to worry about this doctrine, Kyle, of predestination. Is it as simple as God knowing? That's the truth. It is. But it's the basis of his foreknowledge upon which the, the, the doctrine of predestination is established. And I love the fact that God doesn't make us into robots. We're not people that have to choose him. Love must be free. And so he gives us his free will to exercise whether or not we want to love him back. That's the beautiful thing about our faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't compel anyone but he wants us to know how much he loves us and he's eager to forgive us of our sin. Let me remind you that tonight is our Old Testament study here at Calvary Chapel, 7 o'clock. Pastor Chris Sanchez will be teaching out of Malachi. My name is Pastor Ken. It's been my pleasure to fill in for Pastor Ron. Keep him in your prayers as he continues to heal. The show will continue as usual tomorrow, 4 o'clock. Until then, God bless you. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.